اعوذبلّہشیطانجیم بسم اللہ الرحمٰن الرحیم ولکم فلقصاصی حیات یا الباب الکم تتکون اینڈ دیر از لائف فار یو ان دا لا آف ریٹیلیشن او مین آف انڈرسٹینڈنگ دیٹ یو مے انجوائے سیکیورٹی ان کامنٹری آف دس ورس ون پوائنٹ حضرت مسلم of the murdered individual. Now this is something that is separate from the point on preventing violence in society and making a deterrent for those people who are inclined towards criminal behavior. This has more to do with the dignity of the individual who died and of the family of the person who was murdered. Now before society existed in the organized way that it does today where we have police forces that in, in, enforce the law, People enforce the law by means of their own internal police systems. If somebody was killed, for example, in Arabia, then <clears throat> the consequence was that if it was found who had killed the person, then revenge would be taken from the people of that family on to the murderer. Now, a person was only really safe from society or from the criminals in society if someone was there to protect him. If there was no one to protect you, then there was nothing to keep people from abusing you, from beating you and from killing you. This is why it was something that was of significance, especially early in Islam, that when the family member of a person in Mecca extended their protection to a Muslim, then that Muslim in many ways was saved from a, diff- a lot of different types of persecution. But if there was no one who extended their protection, then there was no police force. Nobody could stop anybody from doing anything. That person was beaten, he was abused, he could even be killed and there was no consequence to it. The consequence was only in the police force that existed in one's own family who were ready to defend our dignity, our individual rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all those things. So their dignity that a person has was very important. When a person and a family did not have respect in the eyes of society, then they started losing their human rights. So it was not a small thing, it was a big deal. When people did not have dignity in the eyes of society, then people considered them fair game as victims of crime. They thought that they could steal from them, they could rob them, they could kill their people, all these things. So this is a very significant point. Now this carries over into today's society as well. Today in society we have an organized police force. In fact, we have for centuries. It's not something that's new. But still this subject of dignity plays a very important role in the enforcement of law. Those people in our societies who are considered and were considered in the past to be inferior, They did not receive the same justice that other people did. Before when segregation was legal, when slavery was legal, then if somebody killed a black person, then of course they were not going to be convicted on the same level as a person who killed a white person. When a black person committed a crime, then the penalty that came down on them was far more severe. It is because of this difference in human dignity that was extended to them. This is something that to an extent exists today as well. We have made great progress in the history of our country. But still these lines of segregation, these deficiencies in civil rights exist to a degree today. And that's really one of the points that is behind much of the debate that happens. When a black person is killed by the police or for whatever happens in a situation, then the debate arises afterwards. That was it really a necessary use of force? Why did he react in that way? Then the case which happens is to, is this person going to be convicted for that crime? This is something that is of great importance, especially to black people, because it comes back to that point of human dignity. 
because they feel from their historical experience and something that to a degree carries on till today, to what, not as much to a severe degree today, but to a degree it still does carry on and there is scarring from the past as well, which of course makes one more sensitive to whatever happens in this day and age. That when a person is not punished for the killing of a black person, then it is perceived and rightfully perceived that this race of people is not given that same human dignity that is extended to other races. And that human dignity then extends into other realities of life where then a person feels more confident committing crime against this demographic because they know that these are not full human beings in the eyes of society. They will not be extended the same dignity that a white person is considered, is extended, or a rich person is extended, and so on and so forth. So this point of the dignity of the victim is not an irrelevant point. It is not something that is relegated to the past. It is extremely important when it comes to crime and enforcement. It is extremely important when it comes to international affairs as well. Many of the reasons that terrorists lash out in the suicidal and insane ways that they do is because they feel that human dignity is not extended to them. When the civilians of citizens of America are killed by accident, there's a different reaction. When the civilians of a Middle Eastern country or an Eastern country are killed, a Muslim country, then there's a completely different reaction. There is no value for the life and the loss of life over there. And of course that translates into real action. Then when we actually make policies, as we've discussed here before, we don't take it as much into a factor that there may be a loss of life over there. If we're trying to take out a criminal here in domestically in the United States, a dangerous criminal who is a terrorist, we're not going to just send a cruise missile into a neighborhood where civilians might be killed, where there is a possibility of collateral damage. It is unthinkable because we extend a dignity to the citizens of the United States. But we're much more loose in our policy when it comes to sending a cruise missile in to kill, out, kill a dangerous terrorist. But there may be a loss of civilian life and collateral damage. Again, it comes back to that point of dignity. So when Islam teaches the point of kisas, when it teaches this point of um, retaliation, the law of retaliation, one of the reasons is to establish the honor of the life of the person that was lost the honor and the dignity of the family of the person that was lost. It is not something that can be ignored. Another thing that cannot be ignored is the sense of revenge that arises in the hearts of people who lose a family member. Now revenge in most cases is a negative emotion. It is something that a person should try and suppress. It's not something that's healthy. It leads to many negative things. But again, when this sense of revenge comes from the correct place, where a person feels this natural desire to take recompense from a crime that was done against them, because it is a crime against the dignity of their people and of their family. And if that dignity is not established, they would promote more crimes in the future. In that case, it is actually a good feeling. It's not something that we can deny a person a right to. When a father's daughter is raped and murdered, how can he not feel the desire for revenge? When a person's family member is tortured and killed, when many times it happens when a woman is raped, then the same sentence we hear repeated again and again, the importance and the need for closure in that situation. Closure is something that many times our justice system does not provide to people and victims because of the mercy that we show to criminals and the ways in which we deviate from the principles that the Islamic Sharia has taught, where a person should always be merciful to the victim if a person has to choose between mercy to the criminal and the victim. So this sense of revenge which naturally arises in the heart of a person is something that many people on an individual level can overcome. It is admirable if a person can overcome it. But we cannot deny a person's right to feel it. We, as a, in, as a bystander, cannot say that this person whose close family member suffered torture and murder does not have a right to feel a desire for revenge. Someone who was tortured by an individual, they should be okay with their 
the, the person who committed this great offense against them serving five years of a 20-year sentence and then being out roaming in society. They have a right to closure. They have every right to closure. And so the Islamic Sharia is something that provides that. It, it shows that mercy and it acknowledges these basic human emotions that every person has a right to feel. And when they are felt and they are expressed in their right opportunity in a way that creates reform in society and good in society, then it is something that Islam acknowledges and it addresses. So one of the purposes of Qisas, of the law of retaliation, is that when a person is killed, then he has every right to feel that this is an indignity that was considered conducted, that was perpetrated against him. It was a dishonor to him and his people and his society and his and him, him, him as a family. And this desire for revenge naturally arises out of a social need as well as an individual need. And if it is not addressed, then crime is perpetuated further in society and it creates a great deal of discontentment in those people who are not extended that social dignity. So this is one of the great wisdoms of the law of Qisas. And so Allah Ta'ala says that there is life for you in the law of retaliation, O men of understanding. Those who have the perception to understand all these vast and intricate points that play into the proper administration of justice in society. That you may enjoy security and also that you may adopt righteousness. Now, Zid Masih Maud made one point in commentary of this verse, which I think is um, you know, very important when it comes to our tarbiyat. And so I'll read out the original. He writes that, he said that, Dunya aur akhirat ki sazao mein ek bara farak ye hai, ki dunya ki sazaye aman kaim karne aur ibrit ke liye hai, aur akhirat ki sazaye afaale insani ke akhri aur intahai natayj hai, vaha usse saza zarur milni thairi, کیونکہ اس نے زہر کھائی ہوئی ہے اور یہ ممکن نہیں کہ بدوں تریاک وہ اس زہر کے اثر سے محفوظ رہ سکے آقبت کی سزا اپنے اندر ایک فلسفیانہ حقیقت رکھتی ہے جس کو کوئی مذہب بجز اسلام کے کامل طور پر بیان نہیں کر سکا ہی رائٹس دیٹ دیر از اے ڈفرینس بٹوین دا پنشمنٹس آف دس ورلڈ اینڈ آف دی ہیئر آفٹر اینڈ دیر از اے گریٹ ڈفرینس بٹوین دم دا پنشمنٹس آف دس ورلڈ آر فار اے پرپس اینڈ دیٹ پرپس از ٹو اسٹیبلش پیس ان سوسائٹی اینڈ ٹو سیٹ اپ این ایگزامپل فار ادر کرمنلز ہو مے تھنک آف ڈسٹربنگ دیٹ پیس ان سوسائٹی ہاؤ ایور دا پنشمنٹس آف دی ہیئر آفٹر آر اے ریزلٹ آف دا ایکشن آف ہیومن بینگس دا الٹیمیٹ ریئیکشن آف دی ایکشنز دیٹ وی ڈو ان دس ورلڈ اینڈ دیئر پنشمنٹ از نیسیسری And the reason it is necessary is because sin is a type of poison which creates an illness within ourselves and it is not possible to heal that illness without medicine being given to counteract that poison. And so the punishments of the hereafter have a, uh, a philosophical truth within them that no religion other than Islam has been able to explain properly. And what Hazrat Masih Maud describes here is a very important point on how we must approach the philosophy of punishment as it applies in this world and in the hereafter. Now many times when we talk about the way Allah Ta'ala punishes and the wisdom behind it, we associate it with the punishments of this world, which is an accurate analogy for the most part. Now we say that, for example, we should look at Allah Ta'ala as we look at our parents. Our parents, if we do something wrong, then you know, if we are genuinely apologized, then of course our parents forgive us. If they see within us, knowing our, us as their children, they know us better than we know ourselves in many cases. If they see that forgiveness would actually motivate us to make that mistake again, they'll punish us. And that punishment is out of love. The same thing extends to society. When a judge, when a society gives a punishment, it is also always with this point in mind. Now this is an accurate analogy for crime and punishment, and this is an accurate analogy for heaven and hell in the hereafter. But for the most part, not in complete accuracy, 
If we apply this too far, then it leads to a misunderstanding of the nature of the hereafter. And that affects the way in which we do actions in this life and with the assumptions that we carry that maybe Allah Ta'ala will forgive us for this and maybe Allah Ta'ala won't. Many times a person does an action or has a fault and they do tawbah. And they assume according to worldly, um, uh, worldly criterias that if a human being would forgive me for this, then Allah Ta'ala will inshallah forgive me as well. But what we fail to notice sometimes is that a sin and a sinful behavior is a disease that we cause within ourselves. And the nature of the hereafter is that when we are born into the next world as a spiritual being, then the spiritual consequences of those illnesses will naturally manifest themselves. Now, if a mother drinks alcohol for six months while the child is in the womb, and then she does toba and says, okay, now I'm not going to drink alcohol anymore, and then for the last three months she says, I'm not going to drink anymore. Will that toba remove the congenital defects caused by the first six months? Of course not, because that is a physical illness that exists within the child. So even though she has repented, when the child is born, the child is born as a child that is sick. He has illnesses because of a natural consequence of what he did. So in the same way, when we do actions in this world that are sinful, they cause a spiritual disease within our soul. And when that soul is born into the hereafter after we die, then there are diseases and congenital defects and they need to be healed. This is the natural order of things. Now after that, if Allah Ta'ala of His special mercy through miraculous means heals those illnesses and grants us paradise, then that is a separate point. But we cannot overlook the natural reality of things. And this is why Hazrat Masih Salam, I don't remember, I think it was one of his khulafa, but I think it was Hazrat Masih Salam who said that sin cannot be forgiven. It cannot truly be forgiven until a person reaches the absolute extent of toba. When a person puts themselves into the extremes of sufferings and completely humbles themselves and destroys themselves in the state of fana before Allah Ta'ala. And when a person weeps before Allah Ta'ala in absolute humility, it is only in that state when true sin is truly forgiven. Otherwise, to think that simply because we have done a tawbah and we have prayed to Allah Ta'ala and we have tried to change our behavior, then all the effects and the residual effects of that sin are washed away and are clean, that goes against reality. It goes against observation of physical reality and spiritual reality. So it is true that a person can commit a mistake for years, but then he sincerely repents. If he is caught for it, the judge may acquit him. On a legal level, that may happen. Our parents may forgive us for something. We do something wrong to a friend, a family member, and then we repent and we genuinely apologize to them. That person may forgive us. All those things are true. And in those ways, Allah Ta'ala may forgive us as well. But if for years we did something wrong, it doesn't mean that just because the judge has forgiven us or our parents have forgiven us or our husband or wife has forgiven us. Now all those things that exist in our personality and our own psychology which are the psychological result of indulging in negative behaviors, now those have disappeared. Those things don't disappear by our wife or husband forgiving us, by a judge or by our parents forgiving us. They stay within us. They are a part of our reality. So Thoba is a combination of these two things. We seek forgiveness from Allah Almighty and we do tawbah that He not punish us from the judicial perspective, but also from the spiritual health and disease perspective. That those congenital defects that we cause within our soul, we must remember that that's, that disease can only be healed with medicine. And that medicine is the true tawbah of weeping before Allah Almighty and going through the stages of fana. That is why Islam has taught that salvation lies in destroying ourselves, our ego, everything that goes against Allah Almighty, and to be reborn as a new individual. That is where true salvation in Islam lies. It's that self-destruction of the ego, that complete 
fana, which is translated in many ways as, you know, to, to, to end oneself. That is what is needed for sins to truly be forgiven. So in this verse of Kisas, of the law of retaliation, it is something that has an analogy in the spiritual realm, but it does not give a full analogy of the spiritual realm, but there are other aspects as well. Now after this is verse 181 to 183, um, which goes into the subject of inheritance. I'll just quickly go over the points in this. They're not uh, too detailed. There, Hazrat Muslim has gone into some detail into it, but I won't cover all the points. فَمَنْ بَدَّلَهُ بَعْدَ مَا سَمِي No, I think I missed it. Yes. كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذَا حَذَرَ أَحَدَكُمُ الْمَوْتُ إِنْ تَرَكَ خَيْرًا الْوَسِيَّةُ لِلْوَالِدَيْنِ وَالْأَكْرَبِينَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ حَقَّنَ لَلْمُتَّقِينَ It is prescribed for you when death comes to any one of you if he leaves much wealth that he make a will to parents and near relatives to act with fairness. It is an obligation on those who fear. Hazrat Muslim one who explained that people have assumed that this verse has been abrogated because of their lack of understanding. So this is a mistake that Mufassireen have made in the past. Nasikh Mansukh is something that does not exist anywhere in any hadith of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be on him himself. But when commentators did not understand the correct commentary of a verse, they would simply say that since I have not understood it, therefore it just must be cancelled out by another verse. But this was a lack of their own understanding, individual understanding. Huzur explains that this verse is not cancelled out by the other verse of the Holy Quran, which describes in detail the laws of inheritance. But what this verse teaches us is that a person should make a will about the Islamic laws of inheritance. And that is something that is very important, especially in our society right now. During the time of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, this was a great need. And then when the majority of society became Muslim, it still remained somewhat of a need, but not as great. But right now it exists very much as well. That when a person passes away, he must make a will that his property should be divided according to the way that Islam has stipulated, the Quran has stipulated, the Sharia has stipulated. And if he does not do so, then the dispute can arise among his family members. If his family members are non-Muslims, then they may say that why should we divide it according to the Islamic Sharia, when he did not leave any will that it should be done so. And then also misunderstandings arise which create fights and problems among family members unnecessarily because of wealth and money. So there should be a clarity that a person should leave a will that this is the way in which I want my property divided in the Islamic way, in the way that the Sharia has dictated. And these are the family members that I have and this is the way in which it should be divided. So this gives clarity in qawl sadid and removes any point of misunderstanding after he has passed away among the family members. And also another point that Huzur mentioned is that at the end of this word, the word that is used for our inheritance that we leave for our family is khair. Um, that al, that is hakkan al muttaqin. I think it is in the next verse actually. Hmm. Yes, in the in taraka yeah in taraka khaira. That when death comes to any of you, if he leaves much wealth. So much wealth is the translation that is given here, but khair is the actual Arabic word that is used, which is interpreted and translated as much wealth. Huzur explained here that whatever wealth we leave behind, it should be wealth that is halal. It should not be something that is earned through forbidden means. And the reason why that is an obvious teaching, the reason why it's very important in this context, is that everybody leaves this world empty-handed. The wealth that we earn is not money that we are taking with us. The only thing that we are taking with us is the result of our money, the khair that comes as a result of the money that we have earned. 
So a person should leave such wealth that is a source of blessings for his family because they are going to be able to spend that money, but is a source of blessings for us in the hereafter. What point is there if we leave money for our family, which is benefit for them in this world, but that same wealth is a torment for us in the hereafter? When we are leaving empty-handed with nothing but punishment for ourselves, then nobody should have that much love for their family that they are ready to go to hell just so they can have a few extra dollars after they die. That is not wisdom, that is not self-preservation, it goes against the teachings of Islam. So we must leave khair behind. We must leave khair behind for our family and send khair ahead for ourselves as well. Then after this, Allah Ta'ala says, فَمَنْ بَدَّلَهُ بَعْدَ مَا سَمِيَهُ فَإِنَّمَا إِثْمُهُ عَلَى الَّذِينَ يُبَدِّلُونَهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيُّ عَلِيمٌ فَمَنْ خَافَ مِنْ مُوسٍ جَنَفًا أَوْ إِثْمًا فَأَسْلَحَ بَيْنَهُمْ فَلَا إِثْمَ عَلَيْهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ And he who alters it after he has heard it, the sin thereof shall surely lie on those who alter it. Surely Allah is all-hearing and all-knowing. But whoso apprehends from a testator a partiality or a wrong and makes peace between them, it shall be no sin for him. Surely Allah is most forgiving and merciful. In commentary, Hazrat Muslim who explained that a person has no right to alter a will after it has been written. And has also Hazrat Khibudul Masih Rabi explained that since Islam has set, has set stipulations for wasiyat, it doesn't mean that we can impose it on somebody. If there is a Muslim that leaves behind a wasiyat that goes against the clear teachings of Islam, then that is his own sin, it is his own problem. We can't say afterwards that I'm going to change this will to make it according to Islamic Sharia. We can't impose that on the person. He has his own right to do what he wants to. So after a person dies, a person does not have a right to change that wasiyat, even if it goes against the teachings of Islam. However, what is mentioned is that if a person leaves a will, and there are some faults in it, by which a person may go against what is wisdom, or by which certain people are deprived of their rights, or perhaps a person goes against the Sharia of Islam, then it is not a sin if a person seeks to create reconciliation among the inheritors. Those people who are receiving the wealth, if they consent to have the distribution redivided, then there is no sin on it because in that case, the people who are the ones who stand to lose something, if they're okay with it to give someone else an advantage, then that is everybody's own individual right. So first, the person who left the Basiyat, it should be um, the, the, every family member has a right to receive what the person who passed away assigned to be left for them. But if a person wishes to do reconciliation between all the parties and they're able to successfully do that reconciliation where everybody happily was willing to change their portion and to give up a certain right for the sake of someone else, then Allah Ta'ala says that, that there is no sin. What was described in the previous verse about how a person should never change anything it doesn't mean that a person should not use the consent of everybody involved to mutually, through mutual agreement to change something in a way that suits everybody's needs best. So these are the principles on both ends that are assigned in the system of wasiyat. That Islam has dictated the laws of wasiyat, no person has a right to change it. If a person changes it, then that person is accountable to Allah Almighty. And it must be administered according to the way that he left it, even if it goes against Islam. But if all the inheritors are happy with having it changed in a certain way, then it is something that is permissible. So now if there's any questions, then uh, we can address them. Alrighty. So today is the last uh, live stream daris that we're going to have. We'll have daris, inshallah, continue on Saturday and Sunday. Um, interestingly, we'll be starting on Saturday with the verses on fasting. 
So that we were on, we just completed verse number 183 of Surah Al-Baqarah. So hopefully by the end of this weekend, we'll finish the verses on fasting. So that, um, you know, within Ramadan, we finish an uh, overview of the verses that are relevant to Ramadan. And so then after Ramadan, when we continue the daris during the rest of the year, then we can continue hopefully from the verses that come afterwards. So with that, we'll end the daris and inshallah we'll continue on Saturday. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Ali Muhammad. وبارك وسلم إنك حميد مجيد